Welcome to SCU Buzz Podcast. I'm River, and today we'll be taking a deep dive into our waterways, looking at the health of the rivers and estuaries and how that affects the seafood we consume. Joining me is Professor Kirsten Birkendorf, a researcher and academic at Southern Cross University's National Marine Science Centre in Coffs Harbour. Welcome to the podcast, Kirsten. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. So to start us off, would you be able to tell me a little bit about yourself and how you developed an interest in marine science? Yeah, sure. Um, I think all my life I've been fascinated by nature. So I didn't grow up near the beach. I was sort of inland a bit and I used to just love watching insects, ants, spiders, anything like that. But we did go to the beach on summer holidays and I used to spend all my time collecting shells on the beach and looking in the rock pools. So when I actually went to university, doing biology seemed like the obvious thing to me. I did a Bachelor of Science degree. And at the end of that degree, I really started thinking about where I wanted to do my PhD. And at the time, I guess I was really interested in contributing to conservation, but also contributing to our quality of life. And I'd been studying the antimicrobial properties of ants for my honours. And so I started thinking about the marine environment and realised that our sort of, um, you know, efforts towards conservation were really lagging behind terrestrial environments. And I thought maybe if I studied something like slugs and snails, I might be able to, you know, make people appreciate how important these organisms are as well. So that really is what got me into the marine science. Mm. So you're investigating the use of marine mollusks for human medicine right now. And uh, you found a promising anti-cancer agent that is currently in preclinical trials Could you tell me a little bit about that and what does this mean for cancer research? Yeah, sure. So I have been studying the medicinal properties of marine mollusks for over 20 years now. And we have found some really exciting things, particularly in one group of mollusks called the whelks that were also used in some traditional medicines, Chinese medicines, ancient Arabic medicines, etc., and often used for women's problems. So I did start investigating their anti-cancer properties against um, endometrial cancer, breast cancers, and we also looked at colon cancer and found some pretty interesting activity. One of the most interesting things that we actually did was uh, use some really fancy technology called mass spectrometry imaging. And this is where we actually looked at how the anti-cancer compound was um, passed into the body and metabolized inside the body. And it was important research for cancer research generally because it's of a class of molecules called indoles, which are used in a lot of pharmaceuticals and also in some other things like our cruciferous vegetables that they say have good anti-cancer properties. So it was really important research because we had this opportunity to look at um, how the compound was metabolized, whether it produced toxic compounds that might have side effects. And yeah, I think that's been pretty um, important research. But more generally speaking, we found the mollusk not only has anti-cancer properties, but anti-inflammatory properties. And uh, that uh, has even been active against acute lung inflammation and other such things. So yeah, really interesting line of research, but actually taking that through to the pharmaceutical market is proving to be really challenging. Mm. So so when we talk about using mollusks for um, anti-cancer research and, and general health, it, what is what is the form of medication through that? Is it would it be through just eating that mollusk as it is, or would it be done through kind of like a process, a pharmaceutical process with it? 
Yeah, really good question. Um, I actually firmly believe, as Hippocrates said way back, whenever <laughs> food is our medicine and medicine is our food, we really do need to think carefully about what we um, what we eat and the health properties of uh, of those foods. Seafood is really good in a large number of properties, but in particular, these polyunsaturated fatty acids. These have anti-inflammatory properties and they're generally good for the immune system. They also have a lot of minerals that can be really good in terms of boosting the immune system, such as zinc and selenium as well. So definitely I think there's a lot of seafood that can be used as just a healthy food uh, or even a functional food. So we think of the green lip mussel which people may consume for its anti-inflammatory properties. Um, but in addition to that I guess we can take um, these extracts from the mollusks and either develop them as nutri nutraceuticals or natural health products or we can actually take them right through to the, um, the, the pharmaceutical market. So there are actually a few anti-cancer and um, pain killing compounds that are derived from uh, mollusks that are now clinically available. So some, as I said, from the cone shell is for treating pain and um, others from some sea slugs are actually used for treating cancer in a clinical setting now. Wow. So on the topic of uh, the nutritional quality of seafood, one of your other areas of research is on the nutritional quality of seafood and how climate change and environmental contaminants affect this. In what ways does climate change affect the seafood that we are consuming? Yeah, that's a really great question because at the end of the day, the quality of the food that we eat does actually depend on the environment in which it's grown. And some of the research that I've been doing uh, has been investigating, for example, heat stress and how that influences the nutritional properties, but in particular, those polyunsaturated fatty acids that have good anti-inflammatory um, properties. So what we've actually found is that in elevated um, heat, we do see a drop in some of those really good polyunsaturated fatty acids and move to more saturated fats. So that's making the food less functional and um, less nutritious from that perspective. But it's not the same for all seafood. So we actually have found that some species like oysters and the, the yellowtail brim, which live in estuarine areas, they seem to be more resilient to those heat stresses because they do live in these naturally fluctuating environments. So it's not all bad news, but certainly um, we, do, we do see these stresses on the organisms. And you, uh, you, I think you also mentioned the pollutants. And so we have also been looking at the effects of pesticides on these um, health properties of the seafood. And again, we see that when the organism is stressed in the presence of something like a pesticide, they produce less of these really high quality polyunsaturated fatty acids. Mm. So when talking about those environmental contaminants in the seafood or in oysters, is the main concern just pesticides or are there also other factors with environmental contamination to be aware of? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There are actually a lot of contaminants that are getting into our environment. We talk about things like um, estrogen-like molecules. Um, we talk about, you know, a lot of compounds that are coming from plastics and PFAS. Um, I think that one of the biggest problems is pesticides because it's actually a really endemic problem and it's invisible. So people don't see these compounds in the water. Um, they're coming off not only agriculture, but also urban areas. So there's been quite a, a range of interesting studies that are showing these um, pesticides are kind of in a lot of the samples that we sample in, you know, the Great Barrier Reef here, you know, down in the Solitary Islands Marine Park where I've been working and up here around Lismore in the Richmond River and in the Clarence River. So, you know, there, there's a lot of them and there's uh, many uh, different pesticides in the same sample. So it's not just a single um, pesticide, but this sort of cumulative effect that we're getting, which is a concern, I think. Yeah. Well, to follow on from that, you recently did a study on oysters growing in the Richmond River, 
which one runs through northern New South Wales, and you found that the oysters were contaminated with 21 different pesticides. So how does this happen, and what are the health, health risks in eating these oysters? Yes, yeah, so we did find a large number of um, pesticides in the rivers, and on average, the samples of oysters probably had ten to eight, um, you know, eight to ten uh, p- different pesticides in them. Um, and yeah, at the moment, we don't really know what the cumulative effect of multiple pesticides is. But some of those pesticides are actually banned; they shouldn't be being used in the in- environment. And some of them are banned overseas because of human health risks. So I think that's a pretty big concern. And particularly when you actually see that there are so many occurring, they could have these sort of cumulative effects, which there really just hasn't been a lot of research on at the moment. In terms of how and why it can be occurring, it's a little bit of a concern, but we talk about diffuse source water pollution. So there's a lot of sources that are coming in and there's not a lot of buffers, particularly when we've got cleared riparian zones. So if we don't have vegetation along the banks of the rivers, we don't have good mangrove forests, things that can actually sequester to some of these pesticides, they can all just get into the the rivers. And oysters are actually filter-feeding organisms, so they pump large volumes of water through their bodies every day. And in that process, they can accumulate these pesticides in in the flesh. So in some ways, oysters are actually really good sentinels for our water quality. They're, They're an opportunity to actually study what's there in the water because they can accumulate things at higher concentrations. Mm. So... Also speaking of just the Richmond River in particular in northern New South Wales, uh, in one of your articles that I was reading this morning, in the introduction you spoke about pre-colonial Australia and and most of the estuaries being quite a thriving environment for oysters. And then post-colonialism, we saw a decimation in their population and then the resurgence. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about the the biology behind that that resurgence of the oyster population? Yeah, it's quite an interesting um, situation, actually. So oyster reefs were actually abundant in a lot of Australian estuaries um, historically. And uh, we did sort of wipe them out through overfishing and dredging, and we were actually harvesting them for the, the lime in their shell. And, um, yeah, this led to, I guess, the disappearance of a lot of oysters. And then we introduced oyster aquaculture. But unfortunately, with oyster reefs, we do actually have 95% of them regarded as functionally extinct in Australia at the moment. So this is actually quite serious because oyster reefs provide habitat, they improve water quality and other such things. The Richmond River is actually a really interesting case because not only did the oyster reefs, the natural oyster reefs collapse, but so did the aquaculture industry. And this is actually attributed largely to a disease called QX disease. Um, It's a parasite. And generally speaking, what we get um, in humans as well as other animals is that a lot of these endemic diseases, diseases that are there in the natural environment, they only become a problem when the organism is stressed. So they've actually got a stressed immune system and that allows the parasite to get in and then they collapse. And we've certainly seen this more recently with flood events, the Port Stephens um, oyster industry, for example, collapsing with QX disease. So good water quality, the oysters should be fine and healthy. Poor water quality leads to disease and this leads to these big mortality events. 
So this is what's historically happened in the Richmond River. But in the last, I guess, five or so years, we've actually started to see the oysters come back in the Richmond River. And it's actually a really interesting case where we think there may have actually been some natural selection for a strain of oysters that are more resistant to poor water quality. So they seem to be occurring a little higher in the tide line than they used to occur historically. And um, yeah, we need to do a lot more study on them. But interestingly, these oysters actually seem to have some resistance to that QX disease. And it's really promising because it holds that potential to actually revitalise the oyster industry. And they have been taken into some hatcheries and they have actually been tested in some other rivers now to see if they can withstand the QX disease. And it's looking quite promising. Fantastic. So what can we do as a community to ensure the health and safety of our estuaries to make sure that these collapse of these vital marine mollusks survive? Yeah, it's it's a complex problem, I think, first of all, because it does involve so many different stakeholders. Um, I think we really need to engage with the farmers and do as much as we can to, to regenerate our creek you know, creek lines and get bring back more vegetation, generally speaking. Um, it does also require, I think, governments to regulate pesticides as a, a little bit more strongly, particularly those that are water-soluble and can end up in our rivers. So the fact that we actually are allowed to use some quite widely here that um, are banned in overseas countries is a concern. And interestingly, over the last 10, uh, 10 years, there has been a 255% increase in the pesticide sales in Australia. So it's kind of going crazy at the moment. We use them too broadly and we use them as preventatives when really we should just be using them to treat problems. So I think we really need to switch to more of these regenerative agriculture methods that can actually bring back a better balance in the ecosystem. But I guess on a personal level, um, we can also think about how we might use pesticides like herbicides in urban environments around our house. You don't need to necessarily spray the weeds. You could use steam or you could pull them by hand. I actually grow my own vegetables, so I know they're clean of pesticides. But um, yes, certainly thinking about the food that you eat and where you get that as well and supporting local farmers who use chemical free methods Mm. so with all of these pesticides in the water um, and you finding them inside of the oysters is there a way that people can still safely eat oysters Yes, absolutely. The oyster industry is actually subject to the Australian Shellfish Quality Assurance Program. So if you buy oysters from a, you know, a good proper commercial supplier that's been farmed on an aquaculture farm, um, they usually will be farmed in clean water or actually depurated. So they'll be flushed in cream, clean water before they're available for sale. Um, it is quite interesting and important to consider that because not only do we have potential pesticide risks, but I've noticed people over summer were collecting oysters from um, just outside a stormwater drain. And in that very location, I've actually found really high levels of fecal coliform. So we have potential for bacterial contamination as well as chemical contamination if you harvest them from areas like stormwater drains. So I totally encourage you, you know, really clean environments or get them from a proper commercial supplier. And then absolutely they're worth eating because they're really healthy food full of good medicinal properties. So I want to take a bit of a circle back and talk a little bit about your research into medicine and marine life. Can you tell me a little bit about your PhD student's research testing oyster blood against respiratory pathogens like, oh, you're going to have to help me pronounce this one, streptococcus? 
Cochise? Streptococcus, yes. Streptococcus. Okay. Yes, so I have a current PhD student who's been looking at the antimicrobial properties of oyster blood. It's actually been very interesting. She's looking quite specifically against how they might be used against respiratory bacteria. And a lot of these respiratory bacteria, um, Pseudomonas and Streptococci and things, they form what's called biofilms. So they form a layer on the surface of the lungs or respiratory vessels and this means that they can be resistant to normal antibiotics they kind of just hide from the antibiotics in these biofilms so what my PhD student Kate Summer has been looking at is whether the oyster blood can actually disrupt these biofilms and make antibiotics work better and the results have actually been really quite promising so the oyster blood does have some antimicrobial properties on its own it can actually stop stop the growth of some of these pathogens but when we apply it in combination with antibiotics it can actually make some of the antibiotics work much better. Wow that's incredible. So last year, you were named as one of Australia's superstars of STEM, which is an initiative that challenges gender assumptions about who can work in science, technology, engineering and maths. How important do you feel it is to champion women and non-binary people in science? Yeah, I think it actually is really important. Um, I think we all need good role models. <laughs> and um, there is, you know, definitely an inequity when you look at um, the, the proportion of females working in STEM, but particularly when you actually start to move up. Um, so we find in, you know, the biological sciences and marine sciences that undergraduate level, you actually get equal numbers of men and um, women. But as you move through into PhDs and then, you know, into to academia, into lect uh, lectureships and then right up to professor or if industry you sort of think about moving up to those CEO levels, it just becomes more and more imbalanced with fewer females actually represented. So I, I think that it is actually really important to, to champion, um, you know, good role models of um, gender diverse people and women and ultimately reflecting on my career, I actually think that I have been pretty successful and I am actually really, really proud of what I I've achieved. So I want to share that and uh, hopefully inspire others. But it hasn't always been an easy road. So I also, you know, like to hope that we can make it easier for women and gender diverse people in the future to actually achieve the goals that they want. So yeah, it's it's um, one of those things that I do think is very important. And for a long time, I think in my career, I actually resented being a female for many reasons, just, uh, you know, in terms of the sometimes the way that I was treated and the old boys clubs and various other things, but also because I suffered from female health problems. So I had pretty, um, I had undiagnosed endometriosis for a long time. I got um, endometrial cancer and I, through many of those years, I had serious hormonal fluxes that led to, you know, behavioral problems, I guess. So I had, um, you know, got quite emotional and sometimes quite defensive and aggressive. And these are not traits that are considered well in academia or science generally. Um, but I didn't have a support network. I didn't have anyone to talk about uh, or talk to about that. And, you know, I guess just kind of struggled through on my own. And I think I really did overcompensate a lot of the times by, you know, saying yes to everything and taking on all of these tasks and trying to be, you know, the hero, because ultimately I wanted to be recognised for what I did, not for being a woman. Um, but yeah, I guess what I've achieved has kind of been in spite of all of that. And now I guess reflecting on my career, I really do want to support people because I think at the end of the day, 
there are so many complex problems that people have for so many different reasons. And, you know, with dedication and passion, people can achieve anything. And I see that happen all the time. But I really believe that having, you know, support and having a bit of empathy can really make that difference towards people achieving what they need to achieve. A hundred percent. And and what would it mean for the science industry too to be able to have an open door and welcoming environment for women and gender diverse people? Yeah, I think it um, does actually, you know, w- women, uh, gender diverse people at the end of the day, are, are, it's kind of complex, I guess. There's some um, characteristics that may be more female, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're in females. Um, but actually embracing, um, you know, the different approach that people may have that may be more sort of community orientated, maybe more empathetic. They bring in a different perspective. And I do think that they bring in balance. And ultimately, I think that you know, the potential of women is equal to, to men. There's absolutely no doubt about that. So why we have these imbalances at the higher levels, I think, you know, it is a little bit confusing and we definitely need to redress that. We need to make sure that people can achieve and bring in these different perspectives. But at the end of the day, you know, people need to be treated as individuals and judged on the quality that they have. Uh, they have because everybody brings something different to the table. So we do need to embrace that diversity because it will, I guess, lead to more innovation, more collaborate, collaboration, and hopefully more people walk, working towards a greater good. Yeah, I agree with you there. Can you tell me a little bit about the university's National Marine Science Centre at Coffs Harbour? Uh, Yes, the National Marine Science Centre at Coffs Harbour is actually a really unique facility, which is actually used for both teaching and research. And um, we also have uh, government tenants there from the Department of Primary Industries Fisheries. So it's actually a really good opportunity for our students to sort of interact with government scientists as well. It's a really fantastic facility because we have what's called a flow-through seawater system. So we pump seawater into our laboratories and we have a tank farm where we can you know, culture up a range of different organisms and run experiments. This includes those climate change experiments so we can change the temperature of the water and and manipulate the system and look at the effects on organisms. So it's a really fantastic system because we are bringing in water from Solitary Islands Marine Park, which is clean. And in a lot of other places, they suffer from dirty water, which actually causes more stress on the organisms. Yeah, so it's it's really a wonderful place to work. Um, it, it is, you know, great place where students can come and study their marine science degree it's a bachelor of science degree with a specialization in marine science and get hands-on experience but we're also really located very close to the beach so you know you can walk down for a swim at lunch and we do um, have a lot of a whole range of different marine ecosystems close on hand that we can go out and visit and so is the when you talk about uh, marine science as a whole, does that include also freshwater marine systems as well as saltwater or does freshwater have a different name to it? We do talk about freshwater ecology or freshwater research um, separately, but of course there is a continuum. So there's basically a transition from our terrestrial freshwater systems through our estuaries into the ocean. And um, the estuaries are really interesting systems because they kind of are that buffer zone between the two different you know, freshwater and marine systems. But it is actually important to understand what's going on in the broader catchment, including our freshwater systems, because whatever comes down the river ultimately is getting delivered into our estuaries and potentially out to sea. So really important to have a a good perspective on that broader catchment. Absolutely. So I have one last question for you. 
Where can people find out more about you and your research? So I do have a couple of websites. <laughs> I have my website through the Southern Cross University Research Portal. So if you um, go onto the Southern Cross University webpage and Google my or search my name, Kirsten Benkendorf, as B-E-N-K-E-N-D-O-R-F-F. <laughs> but I also have a personal website, which is just Kirsten Benkendorf Marine Research au. It's all one word, Kirsten Benkendorf Marine Research, bit of a silly site name. But yeah, you can find out a lot more information about me there. Great. Thank you so much for being with us here, Kirsten. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been great. We would like to acknowledge the Widjibal Wyabal people of Bundjalung country as the traditional owners of this land. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respect to elders past, present and emerging.